Good morning, everyone. Welcome to GYC again. You've got pl plenty of welcomes, I'm sure. Welcome to the workshop seminar session at GYC. This one is entitled On the Shoulders of Giants, and we have a five-part series. Four today, one tomorrow. The seminar titles are slightly changed. I'll explain that in just a moment. And let's have a word of prayer, though, as we get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together, to learn together, and to cast our minds backwards and forwards together. Be with us at this time, I pray. Speak through me. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, this workshop is entitled On the Shoulders of Giants. Just a straw poll. How many of you are familiar or have heard of Lineage Journey? Okay. Quite a few of you. Thank you for coming. This workshop is entitled The Domino Effect. And then our second one, which is advertised out there, is called Female Influences. I think you changed the world. The third one was going to be You Died for That, and the fourth one was another one on women. What I've done, I've combined the two female presentations together because we're putting another one in there, number three, that's called The Message in Media, which won't be so much a historical presentation. It'll be looking at media ministry. I have one of the lineage team members here. If you would stand, please. Ashley Bloom, he's, one of our, he's our photographer, he's one of our media experts that works with Lineage, and he's going to be primarily sharing that workshop called The Message in Media, and how media ministry and how Lineage utilize media ministry, etc., in today's world. So we're going to be looking at that, we'll have some Q&A of that, we'll be talking a little bit about our journey, how Lineage started, the, the, the progress we've been on, and so on in The Message in Media. Fourth one, you died for that, and the fifth one, youth changing the world. You may have heard this quote, quote before by Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was a famous scientist, but in many ways he was a theologian as well. He wrote more on the books of Daniel and Revelation than he did on science. And he made this quotation that has been quoted by many people, um, quoting him, If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And today I believe we really have that opportunity, and I'd say privilege, as Adventists, to stand on the shoulders of our Adventist pioneers and then the martyrs and the reformers of the, of the Christian Reformation. And as we stand on their shoulders, we can look back and see what they stood for. And also it gives us an opportunity, in a sense, symbolically speaking, to look forward, to see where we're going because we're riding on their shoulders. I believe the study of history is important. Many of you would have gone to school. How many of you went to school and you thought history was pretty boring? And yet you've come to a history workshop. Amen. But in many ways, you're right, because the way that history is often taught, not by all people, what is often taught and the way it's often graded in schools is, quite rightly, boring. Where you're memorizing a date and you're memorizing a name and you're memorizing an event with very little memorization or discussion about the impact of that or the meaning of that or why that impacts or why that connects with you today. So it's just names and dates and it's just kind of devoid of the actual connection between the present day. History, though, I believe is important. I want to share with you a couple of quotations before we get into it. History is inextricably linked to identity. If you don't know your history, if you don't know your family, then who are you? On a personal level, you want to know your parents' stories. And if you don't want to know them now when you're younger, as you get older, you'll want to know their stories more and more the older you get. Who were my parents? Where did they grow up? What are their stories? What made my parents who they are? What made my grandparents who they are? And how does that impact me today? Because it all links to your identity and this understanding as to who we are. Edmund Burke said this, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Sadly, in this world today, we live in a society and a, a world that really, I, I, I saw one person say this, that if there's one thing we learn from history, unfortunately, it's often that we don't learn much. But we have the opportunity to, in a sense, personally break that cycle. Because if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. Ellen White said something with a similar theme when she said these words. Nope, she didn't. Milan Hubble said this. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, and its history. And before long, the nation will forget what it is 
and what it was. They'll forget. When you look at some of these dictatorial regimes over the past just 100 years of Earth's history, you can see one of the things some regimes do is they get rid of the history books. They get rid of the study books. In the Cambodian Revolution, they just burned all the books, erasing the history of the country. Adolf Hitler did something similar. The Russians did something similar. Erase the history, erase the nation's identity, and then try and recreate a new one. Today, we live in a society where people do read. If you look at the literacy rate in North America, it's going to be close to 100%. But sadly, what we have in North America is the same thing we have in Europe and the same thing we have around the world. It is not a problem with literacy, and it's not a problem, obviously, with the opposite illiteracy. The challenge we have in our society is a problem with illiteracy. What's illiteracy? The choice not to read. Not the choice, maybe the choice, maybe that's strong, I don't know. But the, the reality that even though we can read, we don't. We read news articles, we read labels when we go shopping, we read signs. But actually sitting down and reading a book and differentiating between different author styles, we don't do that anymore. Not much. Some of us do, I'm not saying everyone. I'm sure there's many readers in this room or at least order book, books or things like that. Ellen White noted the importance of history when she said this. In reviewing our past history, we often, we often focus on the last sentence, but I'll read the whole, the whole quotation. In reviewing our past history from 1844 to 1892, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say, praise God, as I see what the Lord has wrought, I am filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. Then the famous bit, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. If we're going forward, we have nothing to fear, she said, unless we what? Forget. Unless we forget where he led us and unless we forget what he has taught us. The dealings of God with his people should often be repeated. For his people in this generation... The Lord has wrought a wonder-working God. The past history of the cause of God needs to be often brought before the people, young and old. We need to recount God's goodness and to praise him for his wonderful works. The domino effect. The domino effect. When you think about things that change the world in our day and age, inventions that have transformed society and the way we communicate, you go back to the 1500s and they invented or they perfected the printing press. That enabled for the mass spread of ideas quickly. For someone's ideas to be written on paper, to be printed and mass distributed. Within our lifetime, or the lifetime of some of your grandparents, if not you, probably not you, the radio was long before us, the radio changed the way people communicate and the way we absorb information. Now you could listen to news coming over the airwaves. We're not really a society today that listens to the radio much or listens to on-demand radio content. But then in more recent times, we've had the television. The television now, what was heard is now what is visualized. And, and, and the visual content changed the way we communicate and it changed the way we interact. Then in the last 20 or 25 years, really at the most, those of you who are kind of the age of maybe 35 and 40 upwards would remember a life before the internet when you went to the library and got out an Encyclopedia Britannica and now the life where you went and searched and we had to endure the dial-up connections and all that before we've got the fast-speed internet that we have today. But now the internet, we have, internet has revolutionized society and then some of us a little bit younger but also old enough would remember when the mobile phone came in. And how that changed, how we communicate. You no longer had to walk to the wall and pull the, pull the, the phone off the wall and, and talk to someone. Now you had the phone in the pocket. But then, 2007, the world changed again. Because not only was it a mobile phone, but now we had a mobile computer in our pocket. With the touchscreen. See, now I'm running my slides from my phone. That's my clicker now. My files are on my phone, my presentations are on my phone, my contacts are on my phone. In fact, the phone is probably the least I actually do with my phone. The iPhone changed society, and then obviously now you've got all the Android and all the other things. But the touchscreen, the smartphone, changed the way we live. 
and social media. Change the way we communicate. This is all in the last 20 years. We're going through a, a digital revolution as we speak. WhatsApp, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook, and so on. YouTube have changed the way we absorb information and changed the way we communicate. Now you can create a video on your phone. Post it. And if the algorithm God suit you, boom, you can go viral. In a few days. And hundreds or thousands of people around the world could hear what you say with very little technology and very little editing power, and you can just go. Is, is, is the virtual reality the next major technological transformation that we're going to go through? Who knows? We're just on the cusp of it. Just on the cusp. But some are predicting that's going to change the way our technological selves interact. The domino effect. I want to take you back to some stories and to show how God used individuals in the past for their convictions and their stands and how their convictions and stands changed the society that they live in, but it had a knock-on effect in other countries before there was social media, before there was internet, and before there was mass media communication. God, through his Holy Spirit, just worked from one country to another country to another country, and people that may not have even known each other we're just blessed by each other with the connecting power of the Holy Spirit. When you look at businesses today or movements or ministries or institutions, there's two groups you can, growths you can have. You can have emergent growth or deliberate growth. Which one do you think is most effective? I'm not a business analyst. So, hey, if I'm wrong, I'm fine. They note, though, I believe, talking to a few people, most major successful companies don't act. I mean, there's a, le there's a level of deliberateness to what they do. They're not just haphazard, shooting off the hip. But oftentimes, the best ideas are emergent, not deliberate. They're not got together when people sit around the table and a committee comes up with the concept. I mean, later on, committees may kick in. But originally, at the, at the inception, emergent growth often is where the best ideas and best growth comes from. Now, the Reformation, the history of the Christian church. In the grand scheme of things, God is deliberate about what he does. But as you look at it from a human eye, it doesn't look very deliberate. It looks, in a sense, emergent. How come that guy popped up there and then... 50 years later, another guy, like, mm-mm, how, how does this work? It looks, in a sense, very emergent. The first person I want us to talk a little bit about is a man by the name of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe is one of my favorite. Ellen White names him as one of the greatest of the reformers. John Wycliffe was born in a world where there was very little choice. <coughs> very little choice. If you look at a map of Europe, and this does go back to about the 10 hundreds, but still, it's still relevant around the time John Wycliffe starts. This is the religious map of Europe. That's Western Europe, the Holy Roman Empire. You've got Italy, Spain, France, Britain. If you know your geography, you'll know what the countries where they're located. Roman Catholic. There's no Lutheran. There's no Calvinist. There's no Anglican. There's nothing. If you're born in these countries here, if you're born in those countries, by birth, you are a Roman Catholic. You don't have a choice. Oh, well, what shall I be? What religion shall I be? Land of America, freedom of... No, no, no. You're a Roman Catholic. No choice. And if you're born in the East, you're an Eastern Orthodox. Now, by the 1500s, and look at the map of Europe. By the 1500s, it's changed. You can't see too clearly. Um, but the, the, the blue here is Catholic. The purple spots are Protestant. And you can see Protestantism is Scandinavia, Iceland, England, um, Denmark, parts of Germany, parts of Switzerland, Holland, Protestant. The rest of Europe, still Catholic. And then you've still got the Eastern Orthodox. Here's another map. Maybe the, these colors will work better. Green is Catholic, and it kind of divides it up a little bit more. You've got Orthodox, blue, um, Church of England, orange. Calvinist is purple, and Lutheran is the, the reddest kind in Germany over there and Scandinavia. So Europe goes from being all Catholic to now having this divided map. Goes through a lot of turmoil. 
It goes through a whole lot of change. It goes through what we would call a spiritual revolution. How does this happen? John Wycliffe was the, is, is the first one. John Wycliffe is the first one, and he's often called the morning star of the Reformation. The morning star is the star, they say, that appears on the, on the horizon just before uh, day breaks. And John Wycliffe describes, is described as the morning star, not just by Ellen White and not just by Adventists, but by Christians across all denominational spheres who look back and they say, John Wycliffe, he's the morning star. Why? Because before John Wycliffe, it's all Catholic. Then John Wycliffe pops up. Even though he dies, quote-unquote, a Catholic because there were no other churches, theologically, he was not a Catholic at death. Like other reformers, Wycliffe did not, at the opening of his work, see where it was going to lead him. He did not deliberately set himself in opposition to Rome, but devotion to truth could not but bring him in contact with falsehood. Principle number one. What do we see as the principle? Great leaders do not set out to be great. They set out to be faithful. John Wycliffe didn't wake him and say, you know what? Here's my five-year, ten-year plan for my life. We love doing those things today. My five-year, ten-year, fifty-year plan. And then set out my ten-year plan. I'm going to be a reformer. And in my thirty-year plan, I'm going to I'm going to be famous in England. And my fifty-year plan, the whole of Europe. And in my hundred-year plan, after I die, I want them to call me the Morning Star. No, no, no. He just set out to be faithful. God determines where his life goes. Now, the context of his life, a little bit context, he dies 99 years before Martin Luther is born. So from his death to Martin Luther, you basically got 100 years. And he, and he was born about 113 years after Magna Carta was signed. You all familiar with Magna Carta? Yes, mostly, some of you. 1215, a document was signed in England that essentially, there's a whole lot to it, but basically, the barons made the king of England sign the document what did it establish? Trial by jury was one of the things it established. It also established the fact that the lawmakers are subject to the same laws that they make. Amen? A principle that we see still under attack today. Now, in the 13th century, it was decreed. What's the context of his birth as well? In the 13th century, it was decreed, we forbid the laity. Unless you're a priest in here, you are the laity. We forbid the laity to do what? To possess any of the books of the Old or New Testaments, maybe you can have the Psalms. But having any of these books translated into the vulgar tongue. What's the vulgar tongue? It's the common language. So if you were English, the vulgar tongue is English. If you were German, the vulgar tongue is German. To have any of the books of the Bible which are in Latin translated into the language you speak on a daily basis... We strictly forbid. So that's the context. He's born and he lives and he ministers at a time when no one has a copy of the Bible. In fact, the church forbids it. They forbid it. It's hard for us to get our mind around that today. You go to church, most of your Adventist churches or Christian churches you go to, you'll have a pew. And in the front of the pew, on the back of the pew in front of you, there may be a hymnal and there also may be a Bible. Because your church just has enough money to buy Bibles for people who forget their Bibles. To have this idea that the Bible is illegal and we're not allowed the Bible is just mind-blowing. Now, what did John Wycliffe believe? Let me keep an eye on the time. What did John Wycliffe believe? Justification by faith. As you look through what he believed, you'll realize he wasn't Catholic at all. Even though he was Catholic in name, he wasn't Catholic. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. There must be atonement made for sin according to the righteousness of God. That's not Catholic. The authority of the Bible. As the person of one author is to another, so is the merit of one book to another. Since Christ is infinitely superior to every other man, his book is what? Superior. He believed in the Bible. He also believed in the sovereignty of God. He also believed when we look at the doctrine of the church, he believed that the church, and then this is revolutionary. Revolutionary. Why is this? This concept, even Martin Luther does not get. The whole Reformation of the 1500s doesn't get this concept. So when they say John Wycliffe is the morning star of the Reformation, it's not that he was just a microcosm of light and the Reformation expounded on him. No, no, he was the morning star. And in some ways, the Reformation doesn't catch up on this. This is 1300s until 1700s when America is birthed as a nation. The Reformation never got this concept. He was way ahead of his time. So he, he said the church should not be supported by the state, right? 
We should send out preachers with the word of God. He believed the church should be disendowed. What does that mean? The church and the state should be separated. Does Martin Luther get that idea? He doesn't get that idea. Does John Calvin get that idea? He doesn't get that idea. Does the English Reformation get that idea? They don't get that idea because all those reformations were connected to the state. The Anabaptists were not. It's not until America is birthed as a nation and they set up the separation of church and state that this idea that John Wycliffe had in 1370 or whenever he had it is actually realized. He condemned the Caesarean clergy. He called them Caesar, like rendered to Caesar that which is Caesar and to God that which is God. He called the clergy the Caesarean clergy. Why? Because he said if you work and you're paid by taxes, you're little more than a civil servant. Today you call a, do you use the word civil servant in America? A civil servant, yeah, they work for the government, etc. They're civil servant. He said the pastors are civil servants. Why? You get paid by the state. In England today, we have the Church of England. How do the Church of England ministers get paid? Taxes. There's no offering in those churches. There's no tithe in those churches. You walk in, you walk out. There's no financial obligation from the attendees to give anything to the church. None. My cousin, my, half my family is um, from Iceland. My cousin in Iceland is a Lutheran minister in Iceland. My family is from a Lutheran background. Lutheran minister in her church, no tithe, no offering. She's paid by the government. State churches. State churches. Like, Europe still hasn't got that. America got it. But it was 400 years or 300 years after John Wycliffe that it came in. Beliefs. Um, he insisted on voluntary offerings instead of, um, should be the only revenue. And he believed in the separation from Rome. He also believed that transubstantiation was not biblical. And we're going to uncover transubstantiation. It's going to come up again and again and again throughout this series because that was a big deal. It was a big deal. He translates the Bible into the English language. Today, if you go to his church, if you ever go to England and you go to his church, you can see a copy of modern copy of his Bible and the English that it was written. And it's very kind of all the eyes are wise and you can, you can get what he's saying, but not fully. This pestilential and most corrupt John Wycliffe, most wretched John Wycliffe, of damnable memory, a child of the devil himself and a pupil of Antichrist crowned his wickedness by translating the scriptures into the mother tongue. <laughs> We look up to him and say, that was an amazing thing. What did they say in his day? Child of the devil, son of Antichrist. Why? What did you do? Well, I said, let there be light and gave the people the Bible. His translation marked an epoch in the development of it. It's interesting. When you look at English and German, the same thing. It was the translation of the Bible that kind of brought the language together and systematize in many ways all the different dialects that was going on. Um, as Luther did in the history of the German language, Chaucer has been recognized as the father of English poetry, but many will say that Wycliffe would be recognized as the, Eng the father of English prose. Today you can go to his church. There it is. It's about 45 minutes from my house. I love to go there every now and then. He died after a stroke on Christmas Day, I think he had a stroke on Christmas Day, and he dies on New Year's Eve, 1384. He was buried in the churchyard by the church. But we'll pick up his story in a little bit. But he's buried in the churchyard by the church. But today, his grave is not there. You can't find his grave. Why? There's a few reasons. One of them, though, or well, there's a connection. Remember, the seminar is called the Domino what? Effect. At the time of his death, the Queen of England was a name, lady named Anne. Her name was Anne of Bohemia. There is no country of Bohemia today. If you were to look for the country of Bohemia today, Bohemia would be the country today of, anyone know? Not Germany? Czech Republic. So Czech Republic or Slovak, around that region, Czech Republic is what Bohemia, I mean it was bigger than maybe the Czech Republic was today, but Bohemia was that area. And she was the, um, she didn't live so long, she was the wife of Richard II. Through her connection, there were scholarship opportunities for those in Bohemia, and they were able to come to England. And Jerome of Prague, one of the connections, he travels from Prague to England and attends the Oxford University in 1398 and takes some of John Wycliffe's writings from Oxford back to Germany, the domino effect. 
How does one country that can't communicate with another country influence another country? How does John Wycliffe, who, as he knows, is just pastoring in Lutterworth, which if we go to Lutterworth today, less people live in Lutterworth than are attending GYC. It's a tiny little place. And pastoring up there, he impacts another country through his writings at the University of Oxford. There's a map of Europe. Bohemia is there. It's the gray. It's not very clear. The resolution is not great. Now, Wycliffe was a great reformer. Ellen White says this. Wycliffe was one of the greatest of all the reformers in breadth of intellect, in clearness of thought, in firmness to maintain the truth, and in boldness to defend it. He was equaled by few who came after him. Purity of life, unwearing diligence and study, and in labor, uncorruptible integrity and Christ-like love and faithfulness in his ministry characterized the first of the reformers, and notwithstanding the intellectual darkness and moral corruption of the age from which he emerged. Wycliffe is truly a man who, if we stand on his shoulders, I believe we're standing on the shoulders of a giant. A giant. Wycliffe, though, we're connecting to John Huss and Jerome. The connection with John Huss and Jerome we've just mentioned with Anne of Bohemia, and John Huss and Jerome pop up about 30 years after his death. Huss and Jerome, we say John in the English, but his name in the Czech is Jan. Jan Huss or John Huss. He studied at the University of Prague, which still exists today. It's called the, University, the Charles University. And he starts pastoring in a church today. You can still visit. It's there in Prague City Center called the Bethlehem Chapel in 1402. Jerome um, lived those years, 1379 to 1416. Notice Huss dies in 1415. Jerome dies 1416. He became a professor in 1401. How old is he then when he becomes a professor? When is that? 22. He's a professor at 22. He traveled widely. Oxford, Jerusalem, Paris, Vienna, Moravia. Huss, Ellen White writes about Huss and Jerome. And it's interesting, when Ellen White writes about Huss and Jerome, parents and those who will be parents and those of you who are not parents, that's everyone. Amen. When the mother was traveling with her son to Prague, Ellen White takes time out. You think about the book Great Controversy. You've got 600 pages that covers 2,000 years of world history. If I was a geek, I'd figure it out. How many pages per year? And how many paragraphs on each page per year? Ellen White takes a whole paragraph to talk about a mother's prayer. Which tells me that that mother's prayer had a significant impact on her son's life. And on the trajectory his life would have. Otherwise, she wouldn't put it in there. She says, as the mother was taking her son to university, she had no gifts of worldly wealth to bestow upon her son. But as they drew near the great city, she kneels down beside her fatherless child and invokes for him the blessing of their father in heaven. Little did that mother realize how her prayer was to be answered. A little prayer that a mother says gets a whole paragraph mentioned in a book that covers 2,000 years of world history because that little prayer amongst other things, made a significant impact on his life. Huss and Jerome went to the Bethlehem. Uh, they were eventually pastoring in the Bethlehem Chapel. This is a picture inside it. And that would have been the, that up those stairs is where, in a sense, the pulpit area. They led their reforms from this chapel in Bethlehem, in, in, in Prague. Both of them spoke against the abuse of power by clerics and both advocated, just like Wycliffe, for the Bible in the language of the people. Because they realize if you can just get the Bible into people's hands and people can read for themselves, their minds will be opened. John Huss also believed in the scriptures as his foundation, Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the importance of public communal worship and the Bible in the language of the people. Notice what he says here. Neither is the Pope the head or the cardinals, the whole body of the holy universal Catholic church. For Christ alone is the head of the church. To such a low pitch is the clergy come that they hate those who preach often and call Jesus Christ Lord. There's a connection in beliefs between Huss, Jerome, and John Wycliffe. This artist rendition here, in a sense, illustrates the passing of the flame from, you can't read it very clearly, John Wycliffe to John Huss to Martin Luther to Melanchthon, illustrating how one took the torch from the other. 
John Hustow was not to live his life in peace. He did not die a peaceful death like John Wycliffe did. Even though John Wycliffe obviously went through a lot of persecution from the Catholics, he still died a natural death. John, Wick, John Huss was not to die a natural death. He was summoned to the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance took place, I believe it started in 1450, and I'm not sure exactly how many years it lasted. And the Council of Constance was called to settle the dispute. You may have read or may know there was a dispute at the time where you had three popes. Three. Each pope says that the vicar of Christ and the Christ representative on earth. So Christ didn't have one representative. He had three. Can you imagine how confusing that is? Imagine if your conference, your part of your church or conference, you know, Washington Conference, Oregon Conference, has three conference presidents. And all of them talk bad about each other and claim they're the real conference president. Imagine if our general conference, our world church, had three general conference presidents. And North America elected one, and then Europe elects another, and Africa elects another, and boy, it'd be confusing. They have three popes, so they call a council to settle the dispute, and also they were to deal with a few heretical matters. So John Huss was summoned to Constance, and he attended of his own free will. He wasn't dragged there, he was told to appear there, and he was promised, he was promised that he would have a safe passage. Now, this is, this is important. I don't think I mentioned it in my slides, but his safe passage was important. He was promised a safe passage. He goes to Constance of his own free will, but when he gets there, he is put in prison. Where was he put in prison? Let me go back a slide. Today, it's a hotel. It's a very posh hotel as well. It's a very posh hotel. I haven't been stayed there. I've only used the bathroom there. <laughs> but in this hotel, in this posh hotel, he was held there, and this little cylindrical tower there was where he was held as a prisoner back in 1415 I'm not sure if it's a bedroom now or what it is but anyway you can go there to the hotel and he's summoned there now his friend Jerome in Prague says if you get in trouble in, in, in Constance I'll come and rescue you so he hears he's in prison so Jerome gets on his horse and he goes down there to Constance today it's on Lake Constance it's on the border of Germany and Switzerland he goes down there when he gets there, he realizes, I can't really get him out of that prison. There's not much I can do here. So he turns around and leaves. But as he's leaving, someone has spotted him, and they chase after him, and they catch him, and they bring him back. So they're trying to settle this dispute. The, con the, the, the council lasts for several years. They were dealing with John Wycliffe and Huss. 18,000 churchmen gather in this town. And 15,000 prostitutes as well which is quite interesting for a church that believes in celibacy. So much so that the symbol of the town, look at that statue there. It's a woman that's about 20 meters tall, and it revolves around all day long. And in one hand, this woman who's scantily clad, you can't really see it clearly, but she's kind of got her leg out and there's a big slit in her skirt, and she's, you know, a woman of circumstance. And, and, and she's going around, and in one hand she's got the head, she's got a pope, and the other hand she's got the king. Kind of a crude look back on history about how the Council of Constance was. Anyway, it tells you a little bit about the spiritual state of the churchmen who were condemning Huss and Jerome. On a head, I'm not sure. I'd have to look more clearly. This is the church, you can go there, where they had the, um, the trial of Huss and Jerome. First of all, Huss is tried there, and we know exactly where he was sitting. If you go inside the church, he was sitting in row 26. There he was, right-hand side. And he stands up before the council, and he says, I am determined on my own free will to appear before this council under the protection of the emperor here present. And the book, uh, history says that the deep flush crimson went over the face of Emperor Sigismund as he's embarrassed. He says, you promised me safe passage, and look, here I am in prison. And everyone looks at Sigismund, and he turns bright red. Why is it significant? Because 100 years later, when, John, sorry, when Martin Luther was summoned at the Diet of Worms, some people said to the emperor there, let's put him in prison. He's here. And the emperor said these exact words. He said, I do not want to blush red like Sigismund. So for that emperor's pride... John Wycliffe, no, Martin Luther, is let off. Huss is called to renounce his errors. He says, what errors should I renounce? I know myself guilty of none. Um, 
I call God to witness that all I have written and preached has been with the view of rescuing souls from sin and perdition. And therefore, most joyfully, I will confirm my blood the truth which I have written and preached. They condemn him to die. And he says, I maintain this for certain, that the image of Christ will never be effaced. They have wished to destroy it, but it shall be painted afresh in all hearts by better preachers than myself. He's not that old when he dies. He's in his 30s. And as he goes to the flames, history records that the flames come up around him. And he began to sing, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And so he continued while his voice was eventually silenced forever. We stand on the shoulders of giants, men who died singing hymns. Some of us don't sing hymns when we have no flames. We just stand there watching or looking at our phone. This guy's being burned to death. And while he's being burned to death, he's not screaming. He's singing because his heart is at peace with God. His heart's at peace. It's a blessing to live a life where you're at peace with your fellow man and you're at peace with God. And it's a blessing to die at peace with your fellow man and at peace with God. Jerome was held in prison. In fact, Jerome, his sidekick, was arrested and brought back. And Jerome then recants. Everyone know what the word recant means? He renounces. That's a good word. He renounces his faith. I renounce. I'm a good Catholic again. He renounces his faith. Um, and he was held in prison for one more year. So he renounces his faith and still goes back to prison. And after another year in prison, <coughs> after another year in prison, is the, the book Great Controversy, weakened by illness, by the rigors of the prison house, and the torture of anxiety and suspense, separated from his friends, disheartened by the death of, Jerome, of, of Huss, Jerome's fortitude gave way, and he consented to submit to the council, and he pledged to adhere himself to the Catholic faith and condemn the writings of Wycliffe and Huss. But at his retraction, Jerome assented to the justice of the sentence, con- uh, sorry, ha- he had assented to the justice of the sentence condemning Huss. He now declared his repentance and bore witness to his innocence and holiness of his martyr. I knew him from his child. So he initially renounces. Then he comes back up and says, no, 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 sorry. What you heard is not true. I now confess. I am ready to die. I will not recoil before the torments that are prepared for me by my enemies and false witnesses who will one day have to render an account of their impostures before the great God whom nothing can deceive. And he was taken to the same spot. The condemnation was passed upon him. He was led to the same spot that Hussard yielded. And he went singing again on his way. His countenance was lighted up with joy and peace. His gaze was fixed upon Christ. And to him, death had lost its terrors when the executioner about to kindle the pile stood behind him. He said, no, come in front of me. If I'd been scared, I wouldn't have been here. Light the fires before my face. I love some of the things some of these guys say as they're about to die. Just they die with this dignity and this fortitude. Like, no, no, no. Like this, even the symbolic act. I want you to light it in front of my face. Not light the fires behind my back. Because I'm not scared to be here. So come on. Come around in front of me. And he dies. Today it's in a... A rock stands there in this leafy neighborhood. And there he gave his life. His last words as the flames were about to rise of a Lord Almighty Father, have pity on me and pardon me my sins, for you know that I've always loved your truth. His voice ceased, but his lips continued to move in prayer. And when the fire had done its work, the ashes of the martyr, like those, am I doing something wrong? Okay, like, the, like those of Hus, were scattered into the river Rhine. And today there's a little sign there. One on, on one side of the rock, it talks about John Huss. On the other right side, it talks about Jerome of Prague. Now, what lesson do we learn from Jerome? Many of us today. Probably more of us are like Jerome than Huss. More of us are probably like Jerome who would renounce our faith under pressure than we are like Huss who would just not renounce. So though while we'd like to think we'd be like John Huss, the reality is we're probably more like Jerome than Huss. Many of us. And I think he's there as an example, as a testament to us. 
Many today stand where Peter stood in self-confidence and declared that he would not deny his Lord. And because of their self-sufficiency, they fall to an easy prey to Satan's devices. Those who realize their weakness trust in a power higher than self. And while they look to God, Satan has no power over them. And those who trust in self are easily, she says, self what? Defeated. Let's not trust in ourselves. Amen. What happens to John Wycliffe? Back to John Wycliffe's story. What happens to him? He's condemned at the Council of Constance, and they say you have to dig up his bones and burn them. Got to burn his, his, his body to ashes. That happened in 1415 or so. His bones were not dug up until 13 years later in 1428, because the first bishop of Lincoln doesn't want to dig up his bones because he's friends. Well, he, he had known John Wycliffe when he was younger, doesn't dig him up. The next bishop comes, and he digs up John Wycliffe's bones and burns them. His ashes are thrown into the River Swift. Well, river is, river is a generous word. It's a very narrow stream. But in seeking to eradicate his life, they gave a beautiful il illustration of the impact of his work. This is the River Swift flowing under the road that leads into Lutterworth today. You can go stand next to it. And this writer said these words. This brook, said an old writer, has conveyed his, conveyed his ashes into Avon. Avon into seven, seven into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are an emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed all the world over. The domino effect. He dies in England. He doesn't know much about other countries in the world. He hasn't written to kings, but he dies. 30 years after his death, 35 years or so, his bones are dug up, they're burned, and a little handful of ashes thrown into the river. And that imagery that was meant to be an insult is an imagery of blessing. Because that Bible that starts there, the River Swift goes to the River Avon, strapped upon Avon. The River Avon goes to the River Severn. The River Severn flows to the Bristol Channel. The Bristol Channel flows into the Irish Sea, and the Irish Sea flows into the Atlantic Ocean. And so his doctrine encompasses the world. If I've seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Martin Luther, we pick up the story because you've got Wycliffe, then you have Huss, and then a about 80 years now later, you have Martin Luther. Foremost among those who were called to lead the church from the darkness of popery into the purer light stood Martin Luther, zealous, ardent, and devoted, knowing no fear but the fear of God and acknowledging no foundation for religious faith but the Holy Scriptures. Luther was a man for his time through whom God accomplished a great work for the reformation of the church and the enlightenment of the world question are these men faultless yes or no no they're not do they have problems they do do they have character flaws or doctrinal flaws yes or no they do martin luther's not doctrinally flawless he's not flawless in what he believes and so when we look at martin luther when we look back we're not we're not eulogizing everything he says because modern history will look back at him and say, oh, he said these things about the Jews, and that's why Martin Luther, and that's why Adolf Hitler did this, or whatever. They'll, they'll look at him and they'll critically analyze him through 20th century lenses. But we have to look back at these figures and recognize in many ways they were a product of their time, or God called them for a specific purpose. He didn't call Martin Luther to discover the Sabbath. He doesn't call Martin Luther to rediscover the doctrine of the sanctuary. He doesn't call Martin Luther to rediscover um, death as a sleep. No, no. He calls Martin Luther to rediscover the essence of the gospel that was saved by grace through faith. And a few other things. He had his purpose in the world. He was born in 1483. He went to the University of Erfurt in 1501. In 1505, he earns his M.A., but then, much to the displeasure, displeasure of his father, don't be like his dad, amen. He was going to be a lawyer. And he says, I don't want to be a lawyer, I want to be a minister. His dad was so upset with him. And sadly, unfortunately, that's a story you hear repeated often today, even in Adventist congregations. He was a poor student. He sometimes would have to sing, going from door to door, and earn a little bit of money. Didn't have a lot. He was educated here. This is when he goes to the monastery. This is effort. It was in this room. It was in this room where Martin Luther finds a Bible chained to the wall. And he's, he's going to study for the ministry. And he says these words, I had never seen a Bible in my life. 
I had heard of his existence, but never seen one myself. How do you take a call to the ministry and go study to be a priest and you've never even seen a Bible? He studied and lived in the second room to the left on the top floor. And he said, if I was to get to heaven by monkery, I would get there. And he then goes on to say, if it was not for Dr. Staupitz, I would have sunk into hell. He went to Rome. He was called to go to Rome. There was a dispute amongst his little churches to go to Rome to settle a dispute. On his arrival, he is shocked at the lack of spirituality in Rome. He says, if Rome is built, he said, if there was a hell that existed, Rome is built on top of that hell. He said, I saw every kind of unimaginable sin there in the seat of Rome. He goes to the staircase. If you've been to Rome, you may have been to that staircase. It's called Pilate Staircase. You know why it's called Pilate Staircase? Because, that's right, they believe. This was the staircase that Jesus climbed when he went up to see Pilate. And guess how it moved to Rome? Miraculously, one night, an angel picked it up from Rome from Jerusalem, and dropped it in Rome. We believe in a God of miracles, amen? I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. That's not one of the miracles of God. So it's a lot of superstition, but Catholics go there, well, many people, and you can see there's a traffic jam to get on there, and they go there, and they say a prayer kneeling on every step. Martin Luther went there, and he was saying a prayer on every step. And we don't know what step it was, but somewhere on his way up those steps, this is probably one of the most authentic places in Rome. On those steps, he hears the word, the just shall live by faith. So what's the issue? He believes the just live by faith. Let me just go back. He believes the just live by faith. And he starts him on a journey of believing the just live by faith. He goes back there to Wittenberg. And then what happens is, what also strikes him and gets him into action is this this guy here. There's an artist rendition of Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences. Indulgences, really quickly, Catholic theology... There's two ways, there's two penit planks of salvation. You've got the, the sacrament of baptism and when a baby is baptized? At birth. Then you have the sacrament of justification and justification is split into three things. Penance, sorry, justification is, um, no, penance, sorry, is split into three things. Contrition, confession, and satisfaction. You have to be contrite, you have to confess your sins, and then you have satisfaction. Satisfaction is where indulgences come in. That's where saying the Hail Mary is coming. That's where they abused it and made you pay. To pay your relatives out of purgatory. It's a false doctrine, but in that time, they even falsified it even more and corrupted it and made money from it. They were raising funds to build St. Peter's Basilica. And he said these words, as soon as a coin of the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So they believe when you die, you, don't go, you can go straight to heaven or you can go straight to hell. But if you're not good enough for heaven and you're not bad enough for hell, you go into the middle place called purgatory where you are tortured for a little bit and then you can go to heaven. But while your relative is being tortured in the middle bit, if one of your relatives who's alive goes to the priest and pays $100, they'll buy you straight into heaven. VIP pass. So if you love your family, if you love your mother, you love your father, you love your grandparents, what will you do? You'll give the money to the priest. Johann Tetzel. You should know whoever has confessed in his contrary and puts arms into the box and his confessor counsels him will have his sins forgiven. So why are you standing idly by run, all of you, for the salvation of your souls? Do you not hear the voices of your dead parents and other people screaming, saying, have pity on me, have pity on me. We are suffering severe punishment and pain from which you could rescue us? For a superstitious population who don't know their Bibles, you say these things and the money flows in. Look at St. Peter's Basilica today, it's huge. It wasn't cheap to build it. Built on superstition. Martin Luther then posted his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. He wrote it in Latin. I believe Martin Luther never intended for it to be widely read. He, would, he just intended for it to be a theological lecture between the, the professors at the University of Wittenberg. Otherwise, he would have wrote it in German. He doesn't write it in German, he writes it in Latin. Someone else takes it, they translate it, and with the Gutenberg printing press that had come out, boom, it blows up. Martin Luther's life is never the same again. Martin Luther goes to the Diet of Worms. That's where he does his famous quote where he stands there and says, here I stand, I can do in the world, may God help me. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Martin Luther later on commenting said these words. I have hitherto taught and held all the opinions of John Huss, unawares. So did John Stalpitz. In short, we are all Hussites without knowing it. 
But where did Huss get his doctrines from? Largely. John Wycliffe. And so when Martin Luther says, I was a Hussite, he's probably really saying, I was a Wycliffeite. What he's really saying is, I'm a Bible student. But there's this train from Wycliffe to Huss to Luther. And then from Luther, back to England. Back to England. Luther had a huge impact on the German language as well, just like Wycliffe and Tyndale had on the English language. He endeavored to put the Bible here into the everyday language. You have to talk like a woman in the house, like the children on the street, be like the men in the market. His translation was very, 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 what time is it? Oh, I think I've got 10 more minutes. Last one I want to talk about today is John Wesley. John Wesley. Because John Wesley has a link straight to Adventism. Straight to Adventism. Just a little bit about his parents. John Wesley was born from Samuel Wesley. Samuel Wesley was a uh, minister. He came from a dissenting family. What's a dissenting family? England goes from Catholic to being Anglican or Protestant. But guess what? When they turned Church of England, guess what? They didn't like anyone who wasn't Church of England. A little bit like when they started in America in 1620 and they thought they came for freedom. Well, actually, they didn't. They just wanted to come and be their own people and refuse anything different. Just like that in England. Dissenters were people that weren't Church of England. His, his, his parents were dissenters. He leaves home to attend Oxford as a servitor, which means a poor student. He looks after the rich students while he studies. In 1697, he goes to Epworth, which is in Yorkshire. He wasn't well received. He was often in debt. He spent time in prison. He separated from her wife because she refused to say amen to a prayer when he mentioned the King of England. Stubborn man. Spent most of his life and work on a, on a book called the Book of Job, which unfortunately didn't really give much money back and didn't ha- really have much impact. To his credit, though, I guess you could say he supported his two sons at Oxford, though it's sad to look at the contrast between Charles and John Wesley, who went to Oxford and became great leaders, and his daughters, who didn't get funding for education, and most of them, sadly, had miserable lives and married some delinquents. Susanna Wesley was his wife. She was the youngest of 25 children. Mm-hmm. The Bible says, be fruitful and multiply, amen. <laughs> Her father was a dissenting minister. This just shows you how strong-minded she was. Her father was a dissenting minister, but at the age of 12, she decides not to be a dissenter and goes back to the Church of England. So from the age of 12, she has her own spiritual convictions. She married at the age of 19. She had 19 children herself, nine of which died in childbirth and eight survived her. She had a hard life with a stubborn husband who had bad financial management. She was deeply spiritual. And um, what else do we know about her? She was known as the mother of Methodism. She vowed never to spend more time in leisure or entertainment than she did in Bible study and prayer. She had 16 house rules, of which I don't have time to go through. But these were the 16 house rules that she had, uh, that she instituted with her children. It was, you know, you've got to be still during family worship. Observe these promises, prevent lying, punish no fault, and so on. So this is Susanna Wesley. We could do a whole workshop just on her. She has two children who influenced the world. John Wesley, Charles Wesley. John Wesley, Methodism. Charles, hymn writer. What's his most famous hymn? Hark the Herald. Angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Probably his most famous hymn. They both go to Oxford. John Wesley enrolls in 1720. Charles Wesley enrolls six years later. He was younger. John Wesley graduates in 1724 with a BA in theology. He then is ordained as a deacon. He becomes a fellow at Lincoln College. He then gets his master's, and then he's ordained as a priest. He goes back to his home in 1728. And in 1728, Charles Wesley starts a Bible study club that's later been known as the Holy Club. Why? He went to university, as some of you will go to university or have been to university, and there's an experience you may go through if you come from a strongly spiritual home. When you get to university, your spiritual life may wander. And one of the remedies to that, he decided to start a Bible study. So he starts a Bible study while he's backsliding. It was Charles Wesley who starts it with a couple of his friends in Christchurch College. John Wesley comes back from being home for a year, joins the Bible study, and quickly becomes its leader. Takes the leadership of the group. The Holy Club was famous. People, Charles Wesley was one of them. The other famous person is George Whitfield, who was part of the Holy Club. George Whitfield was famous here in America. He traveled here about eight times. He's, he died here in America. He's buried in um, Boston, in, in, in a church there. What did they do? They had daily Bible study. They examined their spiritual lives. They fasted. They visited the prisoners and debtors, and they had weekly communion. So sometimes they were called the sacramentarians. What else? The Holy Club 
was active from 1728 to 1735. Then the Wesleys left Oxford. They left Oxford and went to the Americas, where they spent two years here in the America and went back in 1737. Their, their ministry here wasn't that successful. In 1738, at a Moravian me meeting, John Wesley feels his heart strangely warmed, which was his way of saying, I felt converted. The Church of England churches are now closing. At this point, they're still Church of England. They're not Methodist. The Church of England churches, they'll begin to close their doors to John Wesley, and even the religious societies he had set up don't want them there anymore. In 1739, George Whitfield tells to jo um, John Wesley, come to Bristol and preach outdoors. The churches don't want you, preach out in the open. So his converts gathered into societies and they continued their growth. In 1743, he published the rules for his Methodist societies. At this point, there's no Methodist church. You still just have the Church of England and John Wesley is overseeing small groups that were called Methodist societies. Then he divides the country into Methodist districts. Then he says the preachers need to travel. In 1784, there was a real split with the Church of England because some of the ministers needed to go to America and they wanted to be ordained and the, and the Church of England wouldn't ordain them. So John Wesley says, I'll ordain you. And the quotation then was ordination is separation. That's the real separation of the Church of England. And in 1784, the society is now operated independent of any control of the Church of England. So the course of his life, it goes from being a Bible study in Oxford to being a group of small groups around England to being its own church. 53 years, he was an itinerant preacher. He preached not less than 40,000 times. In 1739, it was a little band of brothers. And in 1791, it's a huge denomination. Let me show you a few maps of England. This is England in 1701. Population density here, population density there. You notice the difference? You've got these concentrated, dense populations around the northern cities. What happens between 1701 and 1900? We have a process called industrialization. We go from an agrarian society to an industrial society. Where did John Wesley do most of his preaching? Even today in England, there's a north-south divide for many reasons. And one of the north-south divides is the south is Church of England and the north is Methodist. Notice those map, the second map there where the population density is and the, sec and the map here that shows where the Methodists are. The Methodists are mainly up north in the industrial cities. I'll say this point real quickly. The Asia revolutions in Europe is from 1750 to 1848. The Asia revolutions, it's, it's a thing. It's when European societies went from absolute monarchies to the constitutional states we have today. The Industrial Revolution happens, factories, growth of cities, transportation revolution, transatlantic slavery, slavery trade is all happening then. It's the age of enlightenment, literacy is increasing. 17 revolutions happen in Europe during this time period of 100 years. The most famous being the, the French Revolution. The South America has their wars of independence. It's a very tumultuous time in Europe and also around the world. Usually, revolutions happen because the lower classes are rebelling against the, the ruling classes. England has no revolution. We have no revolution. Unlike all the other countries in Europe, there's no revolution in Great Britain. I believe it's because of John Wesley. Instead, we have a revival based on the Bible. And who did he do his revival mostly amongst? The working classes. People working in the factories. He taught them to live lives free of alcohol. He taught them to save their money. He taught them to be frugal. He taught them to study their Bibles. He taught them to pray. Did it spare England a revolution like France? You can't prove it because you don't know. France had a short man called Napoleon lead them to a bloody revolution. England had a short man called John Wesley who was five foot three lead them to a revival. Methodism, how does it connect to Admetism? In the USA, it starts in 1760. By 1820, it was the second largest denomination here in the United States. Between 1800 and 1825, the Methodist church grew by 500% here in North America. One in three of the principal founders of Adventism was Methodist, Ellen White. The SDA structure is very similar to the Methodist structure. We have a similar views on salvation. We are Arminian as Adventists as opposed to Calvinistic. And the camp meetings and revivals that we do today, we get from our Methodist origins. The domino effect. The disciples also, same thing. They traveled the world, 12 disciples who turned the world upside down. If I have seen further than others today, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants.
Our spiritual heritage encompasses who we are as a people. And it's important that we know it because it gives us a greater sense of our identity today. And with our identity comes our purpose and our mission. Our second presentation, I think we have a 10 minute break. We're gonna be looking at female influencers who change the world. We're gonna be looking at about five or six women and the role that they played historically, the sacrifices they made and how that impacts even us today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to live in the footsteps of these great men and women who came before us. May we have a greater sense of our spiritual identity based on where we come from, based on your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioverse, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.